Well, good morning. We've asked, if you follow on Facebook, we've asked that you would read this passage in advance because it's so big. I gave Joe a small section of that to read to us this morning just so you'd be familiar a little bit with the story that's going to unfold this morning and the scripture that we're going to uncover, but it's a massive chunk of scripture that we're going to cover this morning. And so I just want you to be prepared for us to move through this this morning and to tell the story of Stephen. But before we do, I just I want to start with a question. If you're married this morning, I want to ask you a question. Would you, would you take a bullet for your spouse? Would you die for your spouse? If you're not married, uh, girlfriend, that was good, an audible answer. I heard that. Maybe you're not married, fiance, girlfriend, brother, sister, best friend, someone that you deeply love, a parent maybe, would you take a bullet for them? Think of someone that you're very close to and would you take a bullet for them? That's the question that I have for you. In the rare instance that that might be asked of you, would you do it? And maybe I can just offer an answer for you. Of course you would. The person that you are closest to, of course you'd take a bullet for them. Of course you'd die for them. Because in a healthy relationship, we've cultivated a love and a commitment, and we've developed a kind of relationship that we would die for them really without thinking much about it. We wouldn't have this long internal dialogue beforehand. We wouldn't have to consider in the moment if they were worth it. It would be a given. It would be an of course. That would be our response. And to be fair, we're often willing to do these big, grand things. We're often willing to make these grand gestures because they're grand and because we know there's, there are very few instances where we're actually going to have to do that. It's easy to say it, and we probably know that it's true, but there aren't a lot of opportunities where we're going to have to give that. The truth is, my wife doesn't want me to take a bullet for her. Not only because she doesn't want me to die, but because my hypothetical willingness to die for my wife is not a regular or tangible expression of my love, right? Because a a wholehearted commitment to my wife is more than one big grand gesture. I can't come to my wife and say, what do you mean I don't love you? Remember that one time I did that one thing? It was a really big thing. Wasn't that enough for you? My wife doesn't want me to take a bullet for her. My wife wants me to take the trash out. My my wife wants me to... (laughs) My wife wants me to play with the kids. My wife wants me to help them with their homework. My wife wants me to spend regular quality time with her. My wife wants me to love her with my whole heart, and that looks like more than one big grand gesture of being willing to die for her. Because my love and commitment to her is a lifestyle. It's something that I develop. It's something that I work at. It's something that I cultivate and practice so that when the time comes when I need to take a bullet for her, it's an of course. Of course I would do that because that's the kind of relationship that we have. That's the kind of love that I have cultivated and developed for her. And this morning we're going to look at the life of someone and the death of someone who has cultivated that type of relationship with the Lord. That's the kind of relationship we want to develop with God. That's the relationship we want to have with Jesus, and we're going to look this morning at the life of someone who's done that and see what that looks like. Because last week, we were introduced to Stephen, 
In chapter 6 of Acts, we are introduced to Stephen, and he was asked to be a representative of the church to a neglected minority within the church family. There's a group of Greek-speaking Jewish widows who were being neglected, and Stephen is one of seven men who are, who are tasked with their care. But we also see that Stephen is a man who boldly proclaims the gospel. He proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. So we see him not only serving the family of God, but we see him proclaiming Jesus Christ boldly at the same time. And as a result, Stephen has created a long list of enemies. And chapter 6 tells us that since these enemies can't really argue with him, since they can't really persuade him to stop proclaiming this, then what they've done instead is they've secretly instigated men to come up and say that he's been blaspheming the name of God. And they've stirred up the people against him and they set up false witnesses to say that he's speaking against Moses and against the law and against the temple. And ultimately they seize him and they bring him in front of the Sanhedrin, the, the council of the Jewish religious leaders, and they bring him there on trial. And the reason this looks familiar to us is because we've seen the same thing happen to Jesus and we've seen the same thing happen to the other apostles in the book of Acts. But we keep saying that the book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people equipped with an irresistible message that are doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Stephen has been proclaiming this irresistible message, the message that Jesus is the Messiah. He's been proclaiming that, and he's been doing so in great power, and he's been performing signs and wonders in front of the people just like the apostles did. Because just like the apostles, Stephen is filled with the Spirit of God. And he's doing these things through the Spirit because God is doing a work in him. And because of this, he's attracted a lot of attention. He's attracted a lot of attention from the Jewish leaders. We've seen this happen again. We saw Peter and John come before them. And we saw them told, don't do this anymore. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter and John say, we can obey you or we can obey God and we're going to obey God. And so the message of Jesus continues to go out. And the message of Jesus continues to be proclaimed boldly by Peter and John and the apostles and men like Stephen. And now they're seeing more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we saw in chapter 6, even priests, even the Jewish priests are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And now this is a real problem for the Jews at this time and for their leadership. And they're kind of out of patience for this. And so what we're going to see today is that this is going to kind of come to a head in the, in the person of Stephen. We've been talking about the escalating persecution against the early church. It's really going to escalate today. And we're going to look at chapter 7. And before we do that, let me just pray for us. Father God, we're about to open your word. And I would just pray that you would meet us here and that you would speak to us through your word this morning, Lord. Would you help us to understand what it looks like to live with a wholehearted commitment to you? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 7, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as Joe said, <clears throat> we have Bibles here for you if you want. We're also going to put a bunch of this up on the screen for you to follow along because we're taking such a huge section of Scripture this morning that we don't have time for me to read all of it. Some of you maybe have read through this in advance. You've at least heard what Joe read this morning. And on a first reading, this passage can be a little bit confusing. 
because Stephen is called before the religious leaders and he's asked to defend himself. And what it sounds like he's doing is saying, hey guys, here's what the Bible says that we all agree about, and you killed Jesus. It sounds like a very quick turn at the end where he makes this accusation against them that makes them so upset. But what we're going to see is it's really a more developed argument than that. And so that's what I'm going to hope to show as we walk through this passage this morning is exactly what Stephen is doing as he takes them through their own history. But if you recall at the end of chapter 6, in his proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, the things that Stephen is accused of doing is speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, and speaking against the temple. And then he's called before the Sanhedrin, and that's where chapter 7 starts. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, and the high priest said, are these things so? He's asking him to defend himself against those accusations. Are these things true? And Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. He says, hear me out. And now Stephen is going to tell them the story of God and his people. Now remember who he's talking to. These are the the Jewish religious leaders, and he's going to tell them the history of Israel. Do you think they need to hear the history of Israel? This is a story they're very familiar with. It's a story they're teaching all the time. But I want you to look at how Stephen tells the story. And I want you to specifically look at the contrast between how he describes God in their history and how he describes them in their history. So here he starts. We're going to see if this works. Ah, thank you, Neil, and all the tech team. It works. Okay. Here he starts. He starts with Abraham. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So he starts by laying some common ground. Our father Abraham, we claim the same history here. We know these things are true. And what about Abraham? The land that they're living in right now was promised to give to Abraham as a possession and to his offspring. What's the irony about that promise? He had no child. God chooses Abraham and he promises to make a great nation of him. And the joke is, Abraham's like 100 years old and has no children. But look at the end of this explanation that Stephen gives. And so, Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. If you're familiar with Israel, that's the 12 tribes of Israel. A great nation comes out of the line of Abraham because God poured out his favor on Abraham and he promised it. And because God promised it, it came true. So Stephen says, we claim this together. We know this. Abraham is my father like he's your father. And then he continues the story. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, their brother, sold him. But God. So look, their response to Joseph, they sell him, they reject him. But God, look what God does with Joseph. God rescued him. God gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. And then look what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And then this great famine breaks out in the land. And everybody needs food except Egypt because Joseph is there and Joseph has prepared them. Egypt is the only place that has food. So Joseph, when his brothers come to Egypt to get food, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Stephen says, see, Joseph was rejected by God's people, but God rescued him. And not only did God rescue him, God used him to rescue his people from famine 
And then God brought his people under the protection of Pharaoh so that they would be cared for through the famine. Isn't that cool? Most of you know that. They certainly knew that. But look at how he continues to tell the story. Joseph has been set up now as a redeemer of Israel who was rejected by the people of Israel. Now he's going to talk about Moses. Now we just read this and we know this story. But look at what he focuses on. Then there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they, they would not be kept alive. If you remember, in this time in Israel's history, all of the male Jewish babies are killed. At this time, Moses was born. This is a bad time to be born as a male Jewish baby. And he was beautiful in God's sight. God's favor was on him. And when he was exposed, see what's happening to the other babies that are exposed? They're being killed. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. What? That's crazy. That's the favor of God. All the other babies being born are being killed. Moses is born. He's adopted by the daughter of his enemy and brought up in Pharaoh's own house. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and in deed. God pours out his favor on Moses because he has a job for him to do. And so he does the impossible. So Moses is rescued by God for a purpose. And then when he's 40, we have this encounter that takes place. When he goes to visit his people, he helps his brother who's being oppressed. And look at this language. This is Stephen's summary of the Old Testament. Remember that. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. They did not understand what God was doing. Instead, they said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Who made you boss? Moses. What are you going to do? Kill me too? And so what does Moses do? Moses became an exile. He runs away. At 40, he leaves. So Moses is a redeemer who's rejected by Israel. See how Stephen is setting them up? 40 years later, now 80 years old, there's the burning bush. And God speaks out of the burning bush to Moses and says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Same lineage that Stephen just claimed. We share this history. These are our people. This is our God speaking to Moses. He says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people and I have come down to deliver them. I will send you. So God comes to Moses and says, let's try this again. I'm going to send you back to my people I am commissioning you as their rescuer, officially now. Let's try it again. So this is Stephen's summary again. Look at the language he uses. This Moses, hey, you guys say I'm speaking against Moses. Let's just remember who Moses is. This Moses, whom they rejected, God sent as both ruler and redeemer. This man, Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. He says, Moses, you remember that guy. God sent as ruler and redeemer, and he was rejected by God's people twice. Two times he's rejected by the people of God. Even when he's sent directly by God to rescue them, they don't accept him. Even after he brings them out of the most powerful nation in the world, even after performing signs and wonders there 
and at the Red Sea, and for 40 years after that, where are their hearts? Still turning away from God, still turning back to Egypt, and asking Aaron, hey, make us a God for ourselves, because we reject this guy. We don't even know what happened to him. And it also says in here, this is the one who was in the congregation in Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the living oracles to give to us. The living oracles, meaning the law of God, received by Moses for the people of God. So Stephen is telling them their own story. He's telling them their own history, which they already know, and he's using it to defend himself. He's saying, you keep saying, I'm speaking against Moses, but we know who Moses is. I clearly understand and accept who he is. He is the redeemer sent by God, rejected by God's people. He said, you say I'm speaking against the law, but I claim the law came from God to Moses to us. So I don't think we disagree there. But Stephen has this uncomfortable focus on God's continual pursuit and redemption of Israel and Israel's continual rejection of God. Do you see how he's framing their history to make his point? So Stephen has addressed those two charges. The last charge is that he's speaking against the temple. So skip with me to verse 44. He said, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as God told Moses to make it, and Moses made it just how God said. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them, okay, when they came into the promised land. Look at the focus. God is doing the work, right? But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen says, you guys are so worried about the temple. You're so worried about the building, but you guys know God isn't in there, right? You have not contained God in the temple. It used to be a tent when it was in the wilderness, and God was in the wilderness, and then God was in Jerusalem, but you're not containing God in the wilderness or in a tent or in Jerusalem or in the temple. God doesn't live there. He said even Solomon understood that. When Solomon built the temple, listen to the words of Solomon. I'm, I'm going to summarize here from 1 Kings. But when Solomon dedicates the temple that he just built for God, for his glory, Solomon says this, to God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. But I'm building this, he says, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you've said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers. And he says, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. Stephen says, you guys keep talking about a building. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about God. God is not contained in the temple. And the temple and the tabernacle have significance, but they are not God. He's not contained there, and the temple is not him. And this is the point of the narrative where Stephen is done making friends. And if you have your um, Bible here this morning, we're going to start in verse 51. <clears throat> so that's the overview of the history. You see how Stephen has framed it to set up his argument. And then verse 51 of chapter 7, he says this, you stiff-necked uncircum stiff people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, 
As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen says, you guys want me to account for what I have said and what I've done? No, it is you who need to account for what you have said and what you have done. He says, look at history. God has been patient and merciful and gracious and has poured out favor on the nation of Israel. And history shows that his people have continually disobeyed and rejected God at every turn. Our fathers rejected Joseph. Our fathers rejected Moses. Our fathers killed and persecuted the prophets who came to tell us about the Messiah, and then you killed the actual Messiah. That's how he ends his defense before the Sanhedrin. He says, Jesus is the Redeemer who you rejected. You are just like your fathers. This does not go over well with them. And you can understand why. But do you see how Stephen, he's not just trying to make them upset, he's trying to show them all of history, all that God has done has been crying out that you need a savior and that I'm trying to save you and you continually push me away. And Stephen says, you're doing it again. And he says it in boldness. And verse 54 says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I don't know how that translates, but they're really upset at him. But look at his response. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's words absolutely infuriate these men that he's defending himself in front of. He's accused them very plainly of killing the Messiah and of perpetuating a history of disobedience and rejection of God. So it's offensive. His words are offensive. And as he completes his defense, the Spirit of God gives him this vision of heaven. It gives him a vision of heaven and God and who's at his right hand? Jesus. And then what does he do? He says it out loud in front of a group of men who tried and killed Jesus as a blasphemer and a fraud. And he says, hey, I see heaven, and I see Jesus at the right hand of God, and they freak out. They have, we'll look at their reaction. This is, um, does not sound like a mature reaction. It sounds like a childish reaction, but the truth is they believe so strongly what they believe, and they are so steeped in their belief that Jesus was not the Messiah that they cannot hear anyone say it again. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. They literally yell and plug their ears and rush him. We refuse to hear any more of this and they rush at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and we'll hear more about him later. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen says to them, you guys are just like your fathers who killed the prophets who told you about the coming Messiah and you rejected God's salvation and said, that's not true and we'll kill anyone who says otherwise. Do you see the irony in their response to Stephen's accusation? We don't do that. We'll kill you for saying that. (laughs) Their reaction is extreme. Their reaction is immature. Their reaction refuses to hear the words that he's been saying to them. And if you're Stephen, this is like a desperate plea. Hear what I'm saying. And they just, they refuse. They won't hear it. And to Stephen, there's nothing ironic or funny about it. He's drug out of the city and stoned. But I think it's important to look at Stephen's response. Stoning is an excruciatingly slow and painful way to die. Stephen is being pelted by rocks until dead, by angry men who have falsely accused him and who are now executing him without a trial of any kind. And as they are stoning him with his eyes fixed on Jesus... What does he do? His heart breaks for those who don't understand who Jesus is. His heart is broken for the men who are stoning him because they don't know the love of God the way he does. And do you see how in his, his death mirrors the death of Jesus? Do you see that in this passage? When Stephen dies, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do you remember Christ on the cross? It says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you hear what Stephen said about those who were throwing the stones at him? He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do you remember what Jesus said when he died on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen's death is a mirror of Jesus' death. Even Stephen's trial is a mirror of what Jesus was accused of, the same kinds of things. And the question is, what is it that compels a man to live this kind of life and to die this kind of death? That's the question that I think we need to answer this morning. What compels someone to live this way? What compels someone to die this way? There are three things that I notice about Stephen in this story. We don't get a lot of time with Stephen, but there's three specific things that I notice about him. Stephen knows the scripture. Stephen knows the word of God. I don't know if you realize this or if you've read through it. I would encourage you to at some point just read through chapter 7. But Stephen has just summarized the history of Israel in like 10 minutes. He's done it very accurately. He's done it very carefully. So he knows the word of God. But the second thing is, he knows what the word of God means. He knows what it's saying. He doesn't just recite the history of Israel. He recites the history of Israel in a specific context to make a specific defense against specific accusations. He's very carefully unfolding the story of Scripture to point out the faithfulness of God and the continual rejection of God by his own people. It's the story of God's faithfulness and God's mercy and God's patience. And a people that continually reject that. It's ultimately the story about a God that loves us so much that he would send his son. It's ultimately the story of Jesus who had died in our place. That Stephen is telling this has happened for you. Jesus has died in your place and he has paid the price for your redemption. He is the promised Messiah that all of Scripture 
begs for. And that God has demonstrated his power over sin and over death and he has raised Christ back to life and then he's invited you to be a part of his family. And not only has he invited you to be a child of God, but he's invited you to live with him forever in glory. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because he loved you that much and was willing to pay the price that it would cost. That's the Jesus who's rescued us from the sin and from the just wrath of God that is directed at all sinners. That's the story of the scripture. Stephen understands that this is the savior that all of scripture has been crying out for and that Jesus is the one that fulfilled that. So Stephen doesn't just know the word of God. Stephen knows the story that it's telling and he understands that all of scripture points to Jesus and that's why he says it so boldly and so plainly to these men saying you have to understand You know the scripture like I do. So he knows the word of God. He knows the story of God throughout scripture. And third, he's filled with the spirit. Every description of Stephen in scripture is about how he's filled with the spirit. And so his ministry and his boldness and his effective witness and his wisdom and the peace and the compassion that he shows even in his death are a demonstration of the work of the spirit in his life. Who can die like this? Only someone whose life is being transformed by the Spirit of God, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's Stephen. Jesus says that the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Stephen had that. Stephen owned that, and he lived it out. Because when he was faced with an opportunity to speak boldly about Jesus in the face of persecution with a possibility of losing his life, certainly he knew that was a possibility. He'd seen it happen. Stephen's response was, of course. That's not a question. That's not something I need to debate or deliberate. That's an of course. That's a given for me. How do we raise up a generation of Stevens? That's the question for us as a church. How do we become a generation of Stevens? How do we become a people with a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ in a healthy relationship with the Lord? We cultivate and develop the type of relationship that draws us close to him. In a healthy relationship, we develop the kind of relationship where we would die for him without really thinking about it, without a lot of internal dialogue, It would just be a given. It would just be an of course. Of course we would do that. And have you and I developed or cultivated that type of relationship with God? What does it even look like to cultivate that type of relationship with God? Well, I would just look at those three things we said about Stephen and say, are those true of us? Do we know the word of God? Do we know the word of God? Are we in it regularly? Do we understand what it says? I would Dare to say that our youth group is putting us to shame in this area. Our youth group read through all four Gospels in six weeks. Did you know that? Our youth group currently is memorizing Romans 8. Anyone here know Romans 8 off the top of your head? They're making a commitment to know the Word of God. But it's not enough to just read it. We have to understand the story of Scripture. We have to understand that all of Scripture cries out for a Savior and that Jesus fulfills that. And that all of Scripture points to him 
as the Savior. And third, we need to be a people that are filled with the Spirit of God, that are being actively transformed into the image of Jesus Christ so that we look more and more like him because of the work that the Spirit of God is doing in us. So that when God says, I want you to do something, we just say, yeah, what do you want me to do? God says, I need you to give this up. You say, sure, I'll give that up because I love you. I love you more than anything. I love you more than life itself. That's where Stephen had arrived. I loved you more than life. You might be thinking this morning, I'm not going to have to die for Jesus. It's just not a reality for us. I'm not going to die because I'm proclaiming the gospel to people. And I would just say, maybe. Maybe that's true. I don't know that I'd say that out loud. Because if you're going to live with a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ, who knows what he's going to ask you to do? And you may very well have to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to come to a place where you've cultivated the kind of relationship where you say, yeah, of course, of course I would die for that. Yes, it's not a question, it's a given. I would do that. But regardless, a wholehearted commitment to something is not about one big grand act. It's like, hey God, remember that one thing I did for you that one time. Don't you know that I love you? God's saying, no, I want regular quality time with you. I want you to cultivate a relationship with me and a wholehearted commitment to me so that when you have to die for me, it is a given. It's an of course because of the relationship that you and I have. It's a lifestyle. One last thing I would give you as an encouragement this morning. Because if you're like me, you're sitting here listening, thinking, what is it exactly that you're asking me to do? Because this sounds really extreme, what you're talking about this morning. And it is extreme. Stephen died, stoned to death, which is not the way any of us want to go. Painful, long, horrible death. And somehow finds peace in that and prays for those who are throwing the stones that they might know and understand the love of God. That's amazing. But what is it that we're actually asking this morning? I just want to remind you of what Peter said. When he was talking to Jesus and Jesus was, gave this message about essentially counting the cost. If you're going to follow me, you better count the cost and you better be willing to pay the price. And Peter says, Lord, we've given up everything. We have given up everything to follow you. What will we get? And Jesus says, hold on, hold on there, cowboy. You've given up everything? Here's Jesus' response. Everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or property, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. To summarize, Jesus says, whatever it costs, I'm worth it. Whatever it costs, I'm worth it. And Stephen clearly understood that because he gave his life and he gave it without a thought. Of course, I would do that. That's the type of relationship that I have with Jesus. You have your connection card here this morning on your worship folder. This would be a great time to take it out. Let me just ask you, I want to address some specific people as you fill this out. The story of Stephen is intense. And when we consider what we do with something like this and how we apply it, it's hard to follow. A wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ is not something to take lightly. And so I would just say, as you consider this and you fill these out now and during our worship, even after, consider this. Some of you are all in. 
you are like where Stephen is. You are, I am developing, cultivating that type of relationship, and it's not a thought for me. I would die right now for Jesus Christ. I am all in. You know what? You need prayer, (laughs) and you need a family to pray for you as you pursue that type of relationship, because that is a hard thing, and that's a hard place to stay, and that's a hard place to live. So would you let us pray for you, and would you share with us how can we pray for you as you pursue that all-in, wholehearted commitment to Jesus lifestyle? There are some of you this morning who say you believe in Jesus and you've put your trust in him, but your response to him looks more like the children of Israel than it does like Stephen. It's more like, who made you boss? And I'll make the decisions around here, thank you very much. I'll decide what I'll give up. I'll decide what I'll do. And a question I would ask you this morning is just consider for a moment where you stand with God and is that where you want to be? And can we pray for you? And can we help you? We would love to. The last group of people I would say is there are some of you here this morning who have never put your trust in Jesus Christ. You have never accepted the gift that he gave in his death and resurrection. You don't understand that he's paid the price for your redemption, that he's purchased you and invited you into his family and invited you into glory forever with him. And I would just say, Stephen would say to you this morning, don't continue to reject the pursuit of God. Don't continue to reject him. Put your trust in him because he's worth it. Whatever it costs, he's worth it. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful for Stephen and for his life and for his willingness to give it for you. And I just pray that we would be a family that's identified by that. Lord, would you make us willing to give whatever we have for you? Would we be a family who pursues you with our whole heart? And that would be our commitment to you, Lord. We thank you that you relentlessly pursue us despite our rejection of you and our disobedience. We pray that you would receive our praise now. In your name we pray, amen.